At the start of this year, uh, Russ introduced our theme for the year, saying this would be a year of pruning for fruitfulness. And that language of pruning is taken from John chapter 15, which we're working through the seven weeks of this summer as we talk about abiding. Last week, we spoke about Jesus saying, I am the true vine. Today, we've got the very next phrase, and my father is the gardener. Now, some of you will be gardeners. Anybody a gardener? Love to be out there, Stuart. I know, yeah, there's some gardeners here. I wish I was better at gardening. It's just hard work. Those weeds keep growing back. It's annoying. But some of you here will be. Doug, I know, has got a lawn like a bowling green. No? Oh, dear. I thought that's what you were known for. Doug, your reputation's just dissolved. Alan Kenny at Southbourne, he just knows everything you'd ever need to know about horticulture in any regard. Now, every year, there are various Garden of the Year or Gardener of the Year competitions, which Doug shouldn't enter for his lawn now, but he could have done. Last year, the winner of the B&Q Gardener of the Year competition had a tiny garden, four and a half meters by three and a half meters. And they showed a picture of it before and a picture of it afterwards. It was just a concrete shell. And he made it into an extraordinary garden, tiny but extraordinary. And he won out of 2,000 people, he won the prize. But there is no gardener like God the Father. And before we read the context, before we read John chapter 15, I just need to mention the context of it. <clears throat> you see, the context is double, which we looked at last week. One, the image of the vine, and God as the gardener, comes from the Old Testament. It's a common theme, which Jesus is picking up and now saying, I am the fulfillment of all that. But it also, crucially, comes at a critical point in Jesus' journey to the cross. He's been in the upper room, he's just left, he's walking with his disciples across to the Garden of Gethsemane, which will be agony. He is just about 18 hours from dying. And he delivers this teaching to them. Let's read it in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, he said, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are, are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. It's a long passage, but it begins with, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Jesus made as John records, seven I am statements, including this one at the start of this passage here. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the last one here, I am the true vine. It was a common thing for Jesus to do. He was saying a whole load of things we haven't got time to get into by it. But there's something different about this final I am to the other I ams. And it's this. That within the same imagery, Jesus also talks about his father, the gardener, and about his disciples, the branches. He doesn't do that with any other of the I am sayings. It's an extended metaphor, and he's including both the father and his disciples as well as himself. And in this imagery, notice he's not only saying, my father is like a gardener, He's something else, but he's like a gardener. He's saying, my father is the gardener. His work with people is how you know a gardener works with plants, intimately, carefully, with a goal in mind and so on, which whether you're a gardener or not will give us some idea of what he's getting at in terms of how his father works with us. Now, when he says gardener, or if you have the ESV version, vine dresser, they're both translations of a Greek word that mean a whole bunch of things, a range of things. It can mean a farm or vineyard owner. It can mean a worker of the ground. It can mean, like specifically in this context here, someone who tends vines. They're the one who prepares the ground, clears the stones, get rid of the rubbish, clears the ground in preparation for the vines to be planted. He plants them, he waters them, he cares for them, he protects them. They used to build a wall or a hedge around vineyards to protect them from, from enemies and from wild animals. He prunes them, he harvests them. It's very intensive work to be a vine tender. There's always something to do. If you're a gardener, you'll know there's always something to do. My garden doesn't get much tending, but there's always something to do. I read of this guy in one of the newspapers. He, it was the secret life of a gardener. He summed it up like this. Any gardeners recognize this? Backache, stroppy clients, and knolls. That's how he summed up his job as a gardener. Of stroppy clients, he said this. I have to say the majority of the difficult clients tend to be very rich. They want absolute perfection in the least amount of time and for the very minimum price you can give them. They will argue over every last penny and even time your lunch break, he said, to make sure they're getting the utmost effort for their money. God has plenty of stroppy clients. Of know-alls, 
The guy said this, because, and God has some of these as well, by the way. The next most difficult client would have to be the enthusiastic amateur who reads gardening magazines and knows all the Latin names, but doesn't want to do the physical work. And you like that? Not admitting it anyway. They hover over your shoulder at all times and direct operations, which can be very wearing for eight hours. And of backache, he said this, aside from the weather, one of the worst things about being a gardener is the constant pulling of muscles and backache. Not so long ago, he said, I did my back in and was in immense pain, but I still had to work. Unluckily, it was a week when I was building a small patio courtyard. I managed to get through moving three tons of sand. Have you put your back out? and all the cobbles thanks to a mixture of gritted teeth, strong tea, and painkillers. It's a thoroughly involved task. When Jesus here like, says his father is the gardener, you can be sure, not that the father has backache or is struggling with stroppy clients, though we can certainly be a bit stroppy as his children, but you can be sure of this, he's very involved. It's not just a picture out there, it's a picture in here. He is at work intimately, tending to each of the branches of the vine. And I want to notice a couple of things this morning from this Father is the Gardener that will help us this morning, but also with weeks coming up. The first thing I want to notice this is simply what Jesus has said, the, the Gardener is our Father. So his work will be described in verse 2 which we'll look at next week. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. But before we look at what he does, we want to stop and note what he's like. If you've got a car, if you have a car, you would be pretty choosy about which mechanic you gave it to. Your neighbor's 15-year-old son who says, oh, yeah, I'll have a go, is not going to cut it. I want to know that the mechanic knows what they're doing. If you've got some work to be done on your house, you're not just going to give it to anybody. You're going to have somebody who's going to take care of it, who knows what they're doing. You wouldn't give your mind to someone who's just playing games. You'd want to know if they're helping you with your thinking and your mindset that they know what they're doing. You're not going to go to anybody but a qualified practitioner for help with your body. You want to know that they know what they're doing. And so it would be with the gardener and tender of our souls. Am I going to trust my soul to him, to God? What's he like? Can he be trusted? Does he know what he's doing? Is he loving and wise? Those are really important questions. If you're not a Christian here this morning, those are the questions. Is God real? What's he like? If you're a Christian here this morning, it's equally important. What is he like, this father? Can he really be trusted with my life? You see, if we have incorrect, inaccurate understandings of God as Father, we could veer off in two different ways. 
in seeing God as Father. One way would be this. We could imagine God the Father as being just like our earthly Father, which will always be an inadequate comparison. Certainly so if your father was lazy, if your father was violent, if your father was unknown. But even if your father was excellent, he will end up a poor comparison to the magnificence of Father God. I've got three sons. I have tried my best, as fathers tend to do, to raise them well, to love them, to care for them, to discipline them when they've needed it, and so on. I sincerely hope that they don't bring their view of God, Father, down to my level. However good a father is, he is a weak comparison. Fathers are meant to point up to God, not to limit what God looks like. The good news, of course, the wonderful news, is that whatever your earthly father was like, is like, God, our heavenly father, is so much more. He is perfect in every conceivable way. In holiness, in righteousness, in purity, in knowledge, in wisdom, in self-sufficiency, in grace, in mercy, in kindness. His perfections are unending. So let me encourage you not to limit your view of God as Father to your Father, whether good or poor. The other thing we might tend, off, tend to veer to doing is this, that we might just imagine God the Father to be whatever we want him to be, which would be equally unhelpful. Stephen King, whose books I've never read, whose films on his books I've never watched, but he's called the King of Horror. And uh, he did an interview a couple of years ago with Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in which he spoke of this. It's very interesting what he said. He spoke of belief in a personal God the God of your understanding. He said, I'm very much in favor of that. Stephen King came on a long journey out of alcoholism. And he said, I decided that I would accept the God of my understanding. They keep it real simple in the support, I believe. They say, get down on your knees in the morning and ask for help to stay away from drugs and alcohol for one day. And if you do... When you get ready to go to bed, get down on your knees and thank the God of your understanding for the help you got that day. I understand psychologically the help of a higher power, but I cannot commend to you at all to veer off, well, God the Father, I'll just make him to be whatever I'd like him to be. You could be inventing a fairy story. You could be inventing utter nonsense to make God the Father whatever you want him to be. Let me encourage you not to veer down, well, God must be the size of my father, or that God must just be whatever I want to pick and choose in the supermarket of religions and put together. It doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, we're not left to see God the Father in either of those two ways, because we have him revealed in the Bible to us.
And let me tell you, it's a beautiful picture. Let me tell you, God the Father revealed to us in the Bible is utterly wonderful. We know him from the Bible and we know him as well because we've uniquely seen him in Jesus. You'll remember, some of you, that Jesus, well known, said this. Well, Philip came to him, one of the disciples came to him one day and said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus has one of those many moments when I don't know if he slaps his head or he sighs a bit and he thinks, well, he says at one time, how long am I going to have to put up with you? I think it was one of those moments of, boys, you're just not getting it, are you? I'm going to have to send you back to primary school in the ways of faith. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the embodiment of God. He is God. He's physically God in the flesh. Come to be with them. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God the Father's like, Philip, look at me. And you will find that I am exactly as the Father. Because as he says elsewhere, I and the Father are one. It's a New Testament theme. Hebrews chapter 1 picks it up. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, the very ness of God has been imprinted in Jesus because he is fully God. What's this gardener, the Father like? Can you trust him to tend you? Do you know what he's like? He's just like Jesus. He's more perfect in every way than we could ever imagine. In holiness, in righteousness, in purity, in knowledge, in wisdom, in self-sufficiency, in grace, in mercy, in kindness. And there's a way that the New Testament writers kind of sum all of that up with the great quality of love. As mentioned here in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As he tends to your life, know this. He is holy love. He is righteous love. He is pure love. He is all-knowing yet all-loving. He is loving wisdom. He is loving kindness. People say that our greatest fear is to be fully known but not loved. Imagine that. Imagine if someone knew everything about you but didn't love you. That would be, that would be horrific. And they say that to be fully loved but not really known is thoroughly insufficient. Your father knows you perfectly and loves you perfectly. Can you bear to let that into your mind? Can you dare to take that on and believe that and change your thinking? Does he? Can he? Would he? But what about this little area of my life? What about that that I did? What about this fault? What about this characteristic? But I know all my faults. Yes, he knows all your faults and he loves you perfectly. It's a wonderful thing. Therefore, we can be utterly and completely secure as we say, you're my gardener. Tend to me. 
Watch over me. Take out those bits you don't want. Grow those bits you do want, and so on. Simon Holly wrote this, if the written word of the Bible could be changed into a spoken word and become one single voice, this voice, more powerful than the roaring of the sea, would cry out, the Father loves you. I don't know whether you've heard that for the first time this morning or whether you've heard that for the millionth time. I want you to hear it again because it's the best news in the world. The Father loves you. I want you this morning to walk out of this building with your chin up, not in self-congratulation or anything else, but because you know, I don't know what else is going on in your life, but I know this, the Father loves you. He will tend to you with ultimate, intimate care. The good stuff, the difficult stuff, you can trust him. At the end of this morning, I want us to be able to say together, Lord, tend my life. I trust you. He's a wonderful, wonderful gardener. We can also say this, that the gardener is at work for his own glory. So verse 8 reads like this. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What he's meaning is that when the life of Jesus is flowing through us, our lives will speak of the weight and the worth and the magnificence, the glory of God. When his life is flowing through us, it's not that life will be suddenly simple or will be shining in perfection, what an amazing person Charlie is. Look at him shining. That's not the goal. The goal is, it's just because you're wearing a bright red shirt. If you wear a bright red shirt, you, you just get picked out. The, the goal is that our lives being transformed don't show about us, they show about him for his glory. But I don't know whether you've realized, talk of his glory raises a question, did for me, if he's such a good father, why is he working for his own glory? Isn't a good father supposed to work for the good of his children? But you see, his glory, I want to try and show you, his glory and our good are so closely related that as he works for one, he works for the other. That's what this gardener is doing. You see, if, if he is the center of everything, he is glorious like nothing else because he's the center of everything. He's the greatest being. He's the source of goodness and joy. Where do you think our good will be found? In his glory, in enjoying his glory, in enjoying the fact that he is extraordinary. There's no one like him. His glory is unsurpassed. Our good is found in his glory in appreciating and loving and knowing just how magnificent he is. And in working for his glory, you see, he's working for our good. See, the best thing, the best thing the Father can do as he tends your life is this, that you see him more. And in his Son and in the work of his Spirit, that we see him more. His good and our glory are intimately connected. And also this, 
They're so closely related that as we live in his goodness, we are a prophetic voice of his glory to the world. It's part of what's going on in John chapter 15. It's a thread through the Bible. God has a people and he's showing them his greatness and his glory so that as he does them good, that good is then passed to the nations around so that they see his glory. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, I'll read a bit of it, go like this. God is saying, observe my laws carefully. The result he's anticipating will be this. The nations around will see about you, God's people. They'll hear about God's people and they'll surely say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? What he's saying is, is this, God is anticipating that as he shows his people his glory and they obey his commands, that the nations around will look on and say, oh my word. Why is it so much better with them than with us? How can they be so wise when we're so dumb? How can they be so righteous when we're not? Isn't that what's meant to happen with God's people today? Doesn't it pain you and ache you and hurt you that people look on the church today and just see a mess? God's plan is that they look on the church and think, my goodness, I need that. Go forward to Psalm chapter 50. It's a lovely, beautiful little verse from Zion, from God's people. Perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Isn't that an amazing image? From Zion, not perfect because we've got it all sorted, but because God is with us. He is perfect. God is shining forth out of us. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. See, as he works in us for our good, his glory shines out to those around us. Because even going back to the Old Testament, the state of a vineyard reflected on the owner. Isaiah chapter 5 is very clear about that. The quality of the grapes, the wine that was produced, the condition of them. And God has invested his name in his people you're not just an anybody wandering around. You carry the name of God where you go. You carry his presence. You carry his name. You carry, dare I say, his reputation where you go. Colossians 1.15 tells us that the Son of God is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was God made visible. Jesus has ascended. How is God made visible now? In his people who are the body of Christ. That's why he's cutting off and pruning next week. For greater fruitfulness, for a greater yield from his vineyard, for his glory. You know, God's people are beautiful. You are beautiful. God's people are beautiful. But we exist primarily to demonstrate the beauty of God. That 
is what we're here for. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says in this passage, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I don't know whether you're up for that this week. Are you up for that this week? Lord, may your glory not be seen in who I am, but in who I am in you. Because your plan is for your glory, which is also a plan for my good. Lord, show me your glory, the ultimate good. And Lord, please tend my life, because you are the perfect, perfect gardener. Can we have the band back up, please? I want to invite you with me to first of all say, if it helps you to close your eyes, please feel free to do so, to say, Lord, God, Father, tend my life. Which means you've got to submit. It means you've got to let go of control. But I want you to know this, you can do that because he's perfect. You might have all sorts going on in your life at the minute. Most of us probably have. That's how life is. But I want you to know this. You can say to God the Father, have my life and tend it. Shape me how you want to. Do you know that's a dangerous prayer? Does it feel dangerous? Some of you are wondering whether to say it. It feels pretty dangerous. That's why you have to know what he's like, not just what he'll do. He's a good, good father. So let me encourage you again. Can you say to him, be the gardener in my life. Be the gardener in my life. Tend me, Lord, in whatever way you want. For your glory and my good. Some of you, that will mean very specific things. At the end of this meeting, there'll be an opportunity to be prayed with at the front right. For some of you, that might be a, you might have an absolute crunch point you might have come to. Lord, tend my life. You might need some support in prayer over that. But let me tell you this. His glory is your good. I wonder if we could just stand now, if you're able, before we sing and agree together. Lord, may your glory be seen in us. Work for your glory, Lord. Anybody able to amen that, Lord? Work for your glory. Work for your glory in Citygate. The congregation here, the congregation at Southbourne, work for your glory. May you be seen. You, the greatest treasure in the universe, the greatest good in the universe. Be seen, Lord, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, 
in the ministries of this church, in our gatherings on a Sunday. God, be glorified. We pray in your magnificent, mighty name. Thank you, Lord. You are a good gardener. You are a very, very good father. We love you. We thank you. Amen. Let's sing.